Hello and welcome back to the Final Whistle podcast. My name is Harry McBain and joining me, as always, my co-host Bobby Addison. How are you, Bobby? Hello. It's a late one today, but I'm doing good, thank you. Now, joining us today is an ex-pro who had a career lasting 16 years with seven of those coming at Millwall. It's former defender Joe Dolan. Thank you for coming on, especially as you're joining us from Australia. How are you doing? Good, Harry. Um, nice to meet you both. Um, always a pleasure to, to be asked to come on and share some of, my, um, some of my experiences with anyone else who may learn from them. So looking forward to it. Now, you've, as I said, you had the career lasting over 16 years at many different clubs. What made you want to become a footballer? Um, it's a good question, really. I think um, I started playing when I was six. Um, we'd moved over from Greenford, where I was born in North London, um, to a place called Biggin Hill in, in Kent. And um, I started playing for a little local club called the Biggin Hill Jets um, and just found my way through club football, um, went to secondary school and, and I've, I've briefly mentioned to you off air, um, one of my mentors, who's one of my best mates now, is still at the old school that I went to, Charles Darwin School. And I think it was basically when I got to year seven that, that this guy sort of got me by the scruff of the neck and said, you know, you got the potential to be a sportsman. Now, he, he, he actually didn't just throw me straight into football. You know, he, I, I played cricket to a decent level. I, I also played rugby. Um, but the thing about me and rugby was I wouldn't actually get involved until somebody hurt me because I, I was that soft <laughs> and it was so cold. And I remember being, being a young lad, every, everything hurts. There's no, there's no pain to child. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was, that was a really important um, few years for me from year seven to probably year 10. By the time I got to year 10, um, I was playing for Kent. I played for Bromley District. I played for Kent County through the schoolboy system. And and then I went to Chelsea as a 15-year-old. Um, so, you know, it was never really... I never really sat down and said, I want to be a footballer. I just became quite good at it. Um, and, and I was quite happy to to go to take it wherever it took me. And, and that was a pretty long journey to Battersea Park to train with Chelsea twice a week. But I knew that if I was going to Chelsea that, you know, I had the chance of, of actually getting somewhere. So um, that was the start of it, yeah. really. I was just going to put in a thing, question here, Bobby, is that if you played as a defender and there's always there's a famous quote um, from Jamie Carragher saying, oh, no one wants to be a defender, no one wants to be a Gary Neville. Did you always want to play in the defensive positions? As I know, many young people always want to play is you know, as the out-and-out striker. Or did, you, did you ever... You know, playing those attacking roles, or were you always majorly defensive? No, I think um, by the time I was playing for Bromley as a district player, I was a, I was a sweeper or a centre back. Um, I played anywhere down the middle, and obviously, when when that pro that period was going on, I was obviously at Chelsea as a defender, but I was still able to play for my school sometimes. And when I played for my school, I obviously played centre forward because, um, you know, that was. That was the main the main time for me to have a bit of fun and and, and play without so much pressure. Um, so I, at times I, I won't say throughout my career because my career was only a few years as a pro. But um, as a kid, I played anywhere down the middle, centre midfield, centre forward, or, or centre back. Mm. Um, but I think it was my ability to read the game. Um, get, I was quite a good communicator. I you know I didn't mind playing centre back at all. 
um, you know, at the end of the day, for me, when I was that age, my dad just told me to do what I was told. And, and if that meant playing left back, right back or centre back, that's what I did. So, um, no, my, my dad was a really important part of, of that first stage as well, because my dad never pushed me. Um, and I think that's important for mm. kids nowadays is a lot of a lot of parents get that message slightly wrong. Um, and my mm. dad was always the one on the touchline walking up and down with a tray of beers, making sure everyone had what they wanted, London Pride, Guinness, Lager, whatever it was. And he never, never really, never pushed me at all. His message was, was clearly, if you're enjoying it and you're doing well, keep going. If the coach is happy with you, that's fine. Um, the only thing we ever, we never discussed games. Um, and my dad had coached and obviously he was a teacher too. Um, the only thing that I got in terms of feedback from my dad was, when I went up for a bath after the game, if I came down and my boots were still dirty, that means he, he wasn't happy with me. If I came back down and my boots were clean, then I'd obviously done my job. And, um, and yeah. that's as far as, as we went. So, you know, my mentor, my, my dad, um, you know, those kind of people around me were the ones that let it feel like it was my journey. You know, it wasn't that I was doing it through mm. them or for them. You know, yeah. it was always, it was always my journey. And I just, I just kept going along with it. And, and you know, all, all the time in the back of our minds when I was at Chelsea as a 16, 17-year-old, my mum and dad sat down with Gwyn Williams, who was the, the head of the youth department at the time, and, and said, look, you know, he hasn't been in football this long. We're not sure about doing an apprenticeship. Um, because obviously back then, if I did an apprenticeship, I wouldn't have been able to do my A-levels. Um, and if you don't do your A-levels, you obviously can't go on a uni and do a degree. Mm. So, um, you know, Gwyn was brilliant and there was me and another, another guy called Matt Stroud. We did something called an associate schoolboy agreement where on Mondays and Fridays we went to Chelsea and on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we went to school to do our A-levels. Um, so mm. we, were, we were really, really privileged uh, for those two years because, you know, I was, we were playing and training with, um, you know, the first team squad was, was Rude Hullet and Viali and Zola. Um, and in the youth team, in the youth team with us, we had John Terry, Neil Clement, John Harley, Joe Shearing, um, Rob Wollaston, boys that went on um, to make it as, as decent pros. So, you know, those two years were very tough for Matt and I, and, and they would have been for everyone in that in that academy because it's so pressurised. But that that enabled me to then go on and have a a, a decent run at Millwall and a couple of other clubs after that. So I bring on to that point earlier, you said that obviously the initial question was wondering maybe if you had any idols growing up with football, maybe even you had some rugby players. Do you reckon there was anyone, you know, when you were growing up that you looked up to and thought, wow, I want to be like him when I'm older and sort of, you know, gave you that sort of inspiration to maybe push yourself a bit harder? Well, the first team I ever watched was Tottenham. Um, oh, when we no. were living in Greenford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, um, I don't follow them anymore because there's a bit of a story to that too. But no, my hero, my hero growing up football-wise was definitely Paul Gascoigne. Um, mm. He was, he was, um, he was mercurial, and he he just had, as I'm sure all the all the boys and, and and players that you've looked up to, it wasn't anything like me. You know, I didn't I didn't think I wanted to be like that either. Oh yeah. I just watched I just watched this guy play and was just amazed at the the ability he had on the on the ball. 
Um, his birthday, his birthday was the same day as mine as well, which I somehow found some it's important. I don't really know how that was important at all, um, but it somehow brought us closer together. Um, yeah, so he was he was great. And you, you know what? When you talk about rugby, um, I used to like watching the rugby league, and I actually watch the rugby league over here now as well. Um, and yeah. you won't remember this guy because you two are far too young, but there was a winger for Wigan called Martin of Fire petrifying and um you know again you watch some sports and you just think wow this guy has, has got it um so yeah i definitely i definitely enjoyed watching um other players play and, and they motivate you and inspire you to keep working because you know you hope that one day that you'll be as successful as them um i was uh, so the next point that we got onto is Although you were born in England, you represented Northern Ireland at under 18, under 21s mm. level. How did it feel being called up, mm. you know, to an international squad? Yeah, it was, um, it was funny. I, was, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were in the Chelsea changing room and Gwyn Williams was going round the under 18 group, telling them who they'd been called up for. And there was England, there was Scotland, there was England, there was England, there was Scotland. And then he got round to me and said Northern Ireland. And I was like, oh. That's that's a surprise, um, because I didn't I didn't know obviously that that, that was a, mm. a potential destination until he brought it up. And obviously, first thing I did was ring my parents, and and they were over the moon. Um, you know, my mum's a Protestant; she's from Derry. My dad's a Catholic; he's from Belfast. So you know that that combination back then wasn't great. Um, hence why we sort of, we grew up in London. Um, but my dad was never going to say, no, you can't play for Northern Ireland because it was still his country, even though, you know, they had different beliefs. He was really proud of me. And, you know, mm. I had a lot of friends growing up who were Catholics and um, who couldn't play for Northern Ireland because their family still lived over there and there would be potential connotations, which was really sad yeah. for them. Um, but, you know, I was lucky enough to play against Germany and Denmark and Iceland and Finland and Malta and um, all kinds of other colourful European countries um, and I actually got called up to the first team when I was lying in hospital with my first major injury my broken leg so um, you know it was it was a great experience and a, a different type of football as well um, but um, yeah I was really proud to, to represent Northern Ireland. Now you played for Millwall for about seven years and we all know they have a, a fierce reputation in the English game mm. Um, especially with the fans, what's it like playing obviously at the den with that crowd behind you? Well, that's the that's the key. When when they're behind you, you feel ten foot tall, and, and that's that's what they were with me from from the start to the finish. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was born in in Harrow in Middlesex, but my Wikipedia page says I was born in Southwark, and I was never going to change it because you know some Millwall fans might have been thinking I was even more of one of them than I was, um, but. You know, the shaved head, six foot four, a little, little bit shorter than that when I actually made my debut. Um, but I was a committed defender, um, mm. you know, and, and I think I just fitted in. I, my, my debut was probably one of my best games ever. Played against a, a, a duo up front from Gillingham, Carla Sarber and Bob Taylor, who'd scored bundles of goals. I came in for an injured Scott Fitzgerald and, and, and was man of the match. And, um, and we won that game think in extra time and that was in that auto windscreen shield what's it called now that um, EFL I think they've changed it now or whatever it was but mm. you know I just I just 
don't get me wrong, I obviously had bad yeah. games as well. Um, and they would have reminded me of them, I'm sure. Now, when you were at Millwall, one of the, the big names amongst Millwall fans is obviously Australian icon Tim Cahill. What's it like? What was it like playing with such a strong character? Yeah, I think Tim, you know, Tim was, was my yeah. age. Um, so, you know, we, he yeah. wasn't such a dominant character, if you like, at that time, because we were all so young and just coming through the team. You know, there was also Stephen Reid, there was Paul Eiffel. Um, there was myself, there was Ronnie Ball, there was Mark Bertram, who's a little bit older than us, Sean Dyche. Um, we just had a really good blend of youth and experience. Um, you know, and lots of players got, got their first opportunities at Millwall, which was, which was a credit to the club, but also because um, we were nearly in administration or we were in administration the year before all of that happened and Rhino and Macca came in and then... Um, you know, Mark McGee took us on to win the league. So um, Tim Tim was an incredible um, player in terms of finding the way to score a goal. Um, you know, for a centre midfield player to score as many goals as him um, is sensational and took him to the top. Um, we played a very, very kind of rigid 4-4-2 um, in the early days, you know, with Christoph on one flank. Um, Reedy or Ice on the other flank and David Livermore and Tim in, in the middle of the field and Livers, Livers would cover so much ground, you know, he would do so much of that defensive work um, and Tim did too but Tim would also pick up those little in-between positions and get on the ball and create the attacks and be the last one coming into the box and, and would score goals so um, you know, he, he definitely um, I don't know what the word is, not um, re maybe did maybe did mm. reinvent himself. You know, when he was young, he was a, he was a he was a box to box centre midfield player. Um, but as he went from Millwall to Everton, you know, he went into a team there that sort of played three midfielders, and he he yeah. just perfected that position behind the striker. Um, whereas when he played at Millwall, we had we always played with two strikers. Um, so you know, he had to do his work defensively as well. Um, so, you know, yeah, he, he was definitely a big character. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't that he wasn't, but there was a few in that team at the time. Um, don't think I mentioned Neil Harris, who obviously managed us as well for such a long period. So, um, yeah, he, he went on to have a fantastic career and all credit to him for that. Yeah. I mean, obviously you mentioned sort of, you know, you gain partnerships in, in teams with players. And obviously I played in the centre-back before mm. kind of recently and I know it definitely helps when you know when you have that one player next to you that you sort of trust and you can rely on it it just increases how well that you can play and do you reckon yeah. you could you could sort of mention anyone that you maybe enjoy playing against because you know you sort of had each other's backs you knew what you were going to do maybe just sort of helped you when you were playing gave you the confidence really yeah I think the the number one um, central defensive partner that I had and played the most games with was Stuart Nevercott. Um, mm. and, and, and obviously his experience before he came to Millwall um, was, was brilliant. You know, he'd obviously played for Spurs in the Premier League and he was just slightly older than all of us. So he just gave you a little bit more of a, of a calming influence um, on the field. Absolutely mad as a box of frogs off the field with his, with his pre-match routines. Um, but at the same time, when you were on the field, you knew 
what he was going to do and, and what he wanted you to do. I, I don't think there was any problem with us as young lads um, doing what we were told. I think that's how we were, we were brought up. And I think Nevers, I knew that Nevers wanted a challenge for the ball in the air. Um, he wanted to be the tight defender, excuse me, and he wanted me covering him in behind because he didn't like running. Yeah. So, um, so you know, I was quite happy to fill that role. Um, Daishi was the same. Daishi was such an awesome communicator. Um, you know, he, he would literally tell you everything that you needed to hear. And I think if you can take that information on and, and you can carry it out, then you've got the chance to stay in the team. So, um, you know, Daishi and Nevers were great. Um, also enjoyed playing with Fitz, Scott Fitzgerald, who, who's still mm. there as the academy manager. Um, but Fitz was a little bit similar to me. Fitz w- was more of a footballer and, and didn't, like the, didn't like so much the contact. He wasn't as tall as me. So he sort of rather encouraged me to be the one that was going in for the heading and the challenging and he would do the, yeah. do the sweeping up. So, you know, that, that, was, that was how it sort of worked out with those guys. Hmm. Now, as well as Millwall, you've played for many clubs semi-professionally because of injuries, etc. Hmm. Include some of those Basingstoke, Town and Haven and Waterlooville. Hmm. How much did you enjoy, you know, there's the lower league atmospheres. I know definitely down at our local team games the atmosphere can get really can get really yeah, good yeah, if there's yeah. a decent crowd there what's it like playing you know with those crowds that may be a bit more passionate because they know the players compared to you know a high profile match in the football league I loved it I mean you, you wouldn't have played as many games as I did if you didn't love that that kind of environment and again what yeah. I was enjoying at that point lads was I was enjoying helping other people um, I was enjoying being the senior member of a changing room with, with young kids coming through, um, you know, that you wanted to help along their way. Um, it just happened with me a lot earlier because of the injuries I had with a broken leg and two cruciate ligament ruptures in the space of three years. I just lost that yard of pace, um, that element of mobility that, that I probably had before that. Um, the other thing was, you know, as I said, I, at 21, I had my first major injury and I was back again at sort of 24. So in those three years, I was actually still growing as well. So I'd actually completely changed body shape by the time I came back as a 24-year-old as opposed to a 21-year-old. So, you know, it doesn't take long for people to say, oh, he's not the same player. And, and, yeah. and I probably wasn't, to be honest. But um, at the same time, you, you, you change um, as to whatever the coach wants you to do. Um, so I'd enjoyed my time at, um, at Stockport and, and I played with a, a young lad there called Ashley Williams. Um, and I'm not going to say that I taught Ashley everything he knew, but I taught him, I taught him a fair bit. And we were defending a lot at Stockport in those days. Um, you know, so that was great. Even though I was only 24, 25, Ashley was 17, 18. Yeah. So again, a little bit like Stuart Nevercott and me, um, you know, there was, there was that age gap and you were able to just sort of give them a little bit of advice and, and education in terms of, of development. And um, it was, um, you know, my time at Basingstoke was brilliant. You know, you, I had a job then. I was doing my coaching badges. I was I was working at my old school. And, you know, you'd still train Tuesday, Thursday night and, and go and play all over the country on a Saturday. Um, so, you know, there was also that element, lads, of, of me being grateful to be able to play at any level at all mm. um, after the injuries. So, you know, I, I very much enjoyed that and cherished it. And, you know, we went on a couple of cup runs. I remember the, the FA Cup run with Basingstoke, which was brilliant. We beat Chesterfield away, who were a league team. 
Um, and then I think we lost to Aldershot um, at home. And they went on to get another decent league team after that. So, um, you know, it was it was a great period. And, and, and like, you know, the Australian venture that we're on at the moment, you couldn't, you know, I couldn't do that earlier, even though my wife would have wanted to, because, you know, that non-league experience, you can't come yeah. back and get, you have to get it at the time. And, and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed playing for all those clubs. And, you know, the, the, the last, the late, the last memory probably was that one of keeping having in the league in the conference South with the last kick back in whatever that was, 2011, 2012 or something like that. Um, so, you know, even though you're playing lower down, the game, <clears throat> the game doesn't change. Like you said, you guys said, you still want to win. Your fans still want you to win. Um, plenty of comments from the sideline um, that, that you probably wouldn't hear in a, in a pro game, but you can hear everything in a non-league game. Um, so you've got to have pretty thick skin as well, which, which luckily I, I have. So, um, you know, it was a, a great period of my life, even though it was lower leagues, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, you've got to feel bad for some of those referees, everyone on the sideline, piping up, telling them what to do. But obviously, you did. Um, you said about your coaching badges and now you're working as a director of football at the school that you're at in Australia. Mm. So how much sort of do you find teaching is rich, <laughs> enriching as a lot of people say it is? Do you know, you're enjoying your job, trying to pass on your expertise to the younger generation and everything like that? Yeah, I think there's too much of a of a misconception between teaching and coaching a, a lot of people mm. um would say that they're a coach and they're not a teacher and and for me there's there's no difference at all um i think what some coaches feel is that because they're a coach every player should come and and, and respect them and, and do what they do what they want them to do um teaching is a is is exactly the same as that but you're also providing different opportunities and different ways for kids to learn. Um, you know, that's what you have to do in a classroom um, to make sure that everyone benefits and everyone learns. And I think coaching is exactly the same. You know, when I coach here, I coached the first team for two years. Um, I won't be coaching them again because I don't think you can be the director and the first team coach Yeah. Um, in, a, in a big program fairly because I think you're not giving enough time to all the other kids. Um, but, you know, I will, I will use video analysis. I'll go out and do it on the training ground. I'll talk to the boys. I'll use a whiteboard. I'll use an iPad, you know, and, and you, you're just basically trying to create learning, um, whatever, whatever you want them to learn. It doesn't need to be complicated, but whatever you're doing, you need to just give kids more than one opportunity and more than one way to learn. And I think, I think a lot of coaches in the in the olden days, as I, I could probably say, would just say that this is my way, this is how I do it, and if you don't like it, then go somewhere else. I think the modern day coach needs to needs to be a teacher, and and I don't think there's any problem with being a saying that you're a teacher because that's you know essentially what we're trying to do with these kids. So um, yeah, I learned that pretty early on um, with again with my mentor back at Charles Darwin. You know, I went back into the office one day and said. You know, I'm finished with this kid. I can't, I can't deal with him anymore. He's too hard work. And and he turned around and said to me, "Well, they're the hardest. They're the ones you've got to work harder with." And the reality is that with 99% of those kids, their problem is not with you. It's not personal. Um, and you have to find a way to get them on board. So, you know, teaching teaching is is hard. Don't get me wrong. I don't do that much teaching. I'm not in the classroom over here. Um, 
which is great, obviously, because I know how hard the classroom can be. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it was, it was a made, massive opportunity for me and my family to come and live in a different part of the world and enjoy bringing our kids up by the beach, um, as, well as, as well as contributing to a community here and building a football programme, um, which I'm thoroughly enjoying doing. Now, we've got two, I've got two little ending questions here. The first one is one that I have stolen off um, BBC Radio 5 Live. So uh, I've got to cut down the numbers, though. Um, I would say if you could invite two other guests uh, for a dinner, a football-related person, they can be dead or alive, whichever, whichever you want. Um, so two people that you would want to invite along to a dinner just to chat about anything, who would you pick? Oh, blimey. Um, Stick you on the spot here. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see them. I did, I've definitely got one. I've definitely got one because um, Gianluca Vialli, I don't know if you remember Gianluca Vialli, he's probably a bit too old for you. Mm -hmm. But he was, he, was, um, he was just an awesome human being at Chelsea when I was there. He used mm -hmm. to call me Big Joe, made time for me, and, and he was an absolute superstar. Um, and he went on to be the player manager for a while as well and mm -hmm. he never changed you know he was he was just fantastic um and i know i've got in touch with him recently because he's had cancer um oh. and he's he's all clear at the moment so luca is has, has beaten cancer but i would love to spend an evening with him um because at the time i was obviously only 16 17 and, and never really i'd love to hear about his career yeah. and, and and what he's what he's enjoyed because you know he, he played for so many massive clubs in Italy as well as Chelsea and Juventus and Sampdoria in Italy so he, he would be number one um, and the other one would be George Best um, George mm. Best is, is um, obviously a national hero my dad's hero my hero he was probably the first one who I actually watched a video of George yeah. Best um, and his, his highlights back in the day um, and, and he was something special. Um, so, yeah, they would be my two, George Best and Gianluca Vialli. And finally, if you could give advice, obviously, I mean, it's your, it's your job, but if you mm. could give advice to people wanting <laughs> to become a, a footballer professionally, what one piece of advice would you, would you say is the most important? Um, for me, is they have to focus on themselves and improving themselves. I think... Far too many kids grow up focused on the result, focused on what team they're playing for and focused on what position they're playing. And for me, the focus needs to be on improving themselves. You know, you, you can control what you do. You can control what you're working on. You only need a ball and a wall. Um, so very much for me, the focus is with these kids is... is don't worry about the things that you can't control, such as whether you get selected, such as, you know, what team you play for, what level you're going to get to. Mm -hmm. Because there, you know, then, then when that time comes, you'll be ready because, you know, a lot of our kids want to focus on a position far too young. Um, yeah. For me, I'd say, I'd say even up until 13 or 14, our kids should still be being moved around the, the field mm -hmm. and playing at left back and right back and centre midfield and, it just gives them a, um, like you used the word enriching earlier on, it just gives them a better picture of, of what it means to be part of a team. So 
you know that that is very much part of my message to our kids is to focus on improving themselves and and um, and the rest will come hmm. now that is all we have time for thank you joe for coming on and giving us an insight into your career and and the stories that you've had to share no problem harry thank you good to meet you sorry it took so long to get it done <laughs> and um, keeping you up so late so thank you bobby um it's all right it was a pleasure and thank you all for listening as well. Don't forget to uh, share us around with all your friends. Uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me as well. That was the final whistle. <laughs>